Well, before I forget to tell you this, um, next week we're going to be looking at Amos, and then Hosea, and then Micah. So if you're uh, keeping track, I forgot to tell you last week to read Joel. So next week I'll be looking at Amos, and then the week after that, Hosea, and three weeks uh, from today, the book of Micah. And that'll kind of give you an idea of where we're headed. Um, The more I've gotten into this study of the minor prophets, the more... Uh, thrilling they have become to me, and I hope that they are to you as well. Remember, I'll probably say this until you're tired of hearing it, but remember, they're minor prophets, not because they're insignificant, not because they're short, uh, at least in stature, they're minor because they're short in their writing compared to the long ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But their message is very powerful and very significant. And this morning, we go to Joel, uh, whose name means Jehovah is God. And we go all the way back, 820 years before Christ, almost 3,000 years ago from our time, and about 100 years or so after the kingdom divided, to the southern kingdom of Judah, where a young uh, king has taken the throne by the name of Joash. Now, Joash is seven years old. It's hard to be king when you're seven years old and your mother's still tucking you in at night and your greatest ambition for the next day is to play with Legos. Um, It's it's hard to run a kingdom. And so Joash uh, was uh, not able to actually administrate the kingdom at such a young age, but he had a godly uncle who just happened to be the high priest by the name of Jehoiada. And Jehoiada was a man who loved the Lord and who had a godly influence on the southern kingdom of Judah. And so under the official reign of Joash, but the actual governorship of Jehoiada, uh, the kingdom was uh, kind of being turned toward the Lord. You have to understand this period of history in the southern kingdoms because uh, they kind of ran hot and cold with their service to God. That was the kingdom, recall, that in the lineage of David, some of the kings were good, some were not so good. And so, uh, depending on the leadership and the people and the seasons of time, uh, sometimes they had revival and they turned to God, and sometimes they were cold-hearted and indifferent. The other thing is, is that they were only about a hundred or so years away from the, the division of the kingdom, and there were still tensions uh, running between the north and the south. I, uh, I, I recall growing up in our south, and uh, even as a child, hearing about those tensions. Um, I can remember my mother telling me as a child, don't ever forget what Sherman did to Atlanta. It took me a while to figure that out because I had a cousin named Sherman, and I wasn't sure who she was talking about for a while. But, but my mother was still remembering the Civil War. And it's like, that was 100 years ago already. Forget it. That's ancient history. But for some folks, it really wasn't. So you still had that kind of thing going on between Israel and Judah. And you also had the nations of Egypt and Syria to the south and east of them that were posing threats off and on. And so here's this kingdom, this little kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, uh, down in the southern portion, and uh, they're experiencing kind of an unsettled political climate. 
Uh, They have also drifted somewhat from God because they were in one of those uh, waning periods. Jehoiada was trying to move them back toward uh, a time of renewed commitment. And as we come into the book of Joel, we find that the land has been ravaged by a, a locust plague, followed by a drought. Now, I've never really seen a locust plague. Um, I, I have seen, when I lived in Tennessee, what they called the seven-year locust, and I don't know if you've experienced that, but boy, that was weird. I had never experienced anything like it. And, uh, you know, they sound like about a million cicadas going off all at once. And um, whenever they popped out for that seven-year uh, locust season or whatever, you know, you'd start the lawnmower, and they thought it was a mating call. And you would just have hundreds of these things swarming around you as you're just trying to mow the lawn. And, and I kept thinking, what would it be like to be in an actual locust plague? Because I've seen video of locust plagues when they come in, they, literally they come in like a swarm, like a black cloud that can blot out the sun, and they eat everything in their path. Dean Leonard was telling me this morning, about one time in his uh, childhood when he actually saw that happen, when they had gone into town for something and they were headed back out to the farm and they saw the black cloud. And his mother said, quick, we've got to get home, get the laundry in, get other stuff in because it's the locust coming. And he said literally the swarm was so thick that you couldn't see the sun when when they got uh, overhead. I've seen video where locusts, come into a perfectly green area and within hours strip everything bare that is on the trees and in the crops. And in the book of Joel, if you look with me in chapter um, two, I mean chapter one, verse two, let's read for a moment. Hear, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land, has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons to the next generations. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. And what Joel is talking about is that these locusts have come in, even in waves of swarms. They have eaten all the vegetation. They've eaten every green leaf. They've eaten every plant. They have even eaten the soft outer bark so that the the limbs look white and like splinters because they've eaten the outer bark away from it. They have eaten literally everything. And if it weren't bad enough to have the locust plague, we find out later in chapter 1 that they have also had a drought that has followed the locust plague. Look in verse 14. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land, 
to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God. The seeds shrivel under their clods. We've kind of seen that sometimes here, haven't we? You plant the seeds and then it gets dry and there's no rain. And all of a sudden the ground becomes almost like concrete. And the seeds shrivel up. And because of the drought, they don't uh, germinate. And so they have dried up. And it says, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, the grain is dried up. The beast groan and the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To thee, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. What happens in a time of drought when there's no water and everything becomes dry like kindling? Lightning comes or something happens and you get the wildfires and all of a sudden everything's burned up. And then he says, even the beasts of the field pant for thee, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. You know, as you look at these uh, first uh, two things that have happened to Judah, you find that the land is absolutely and completely devastated. There's nothing left to eat, it seems. Uh, The herds and the flocks are suffering. Uh, The wildfires have consumed some of the fields. And everywhere they look, the nation is in dire straits. I just want to stop now and get you to think with me for a moment. Last week I warned us about attempting to make a personal interpretation every time some calamity strikes. It's very easy when it happens to them to say God's judging them and when it happens to us to say oh we had a terrible storm or whatever we have to be careful about making a judgment and saying God did this or God did that but there is a sound biblical principle of a way that we should respond whenever adversity strikes And this goes for us personally, as well as corporately, as well as nationally. Not every bad thing that happens is a judgment from God. Sometimes it's just a part of living in a fallen world. Sometimes it may even be the result of someone else's sin. Sometimes it's just the, quote, natural disaster. But... Every time adversity strikes, it is a good time to seek the Lord. It is a good time to ask God the question, Is everything right with me and you? Are we okay together? It's a good time to ask that question. In fact, Even when illness comes, it's a good time to ask that question. James says, is there any sick among you? Let that person call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. 
and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And if they have committed any sins, they will be forgiven them. Therefore, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you can be healed. Every time we are stricken with an illness, it is a time to seek the Lord. It does not mean that you're sick because you've sinned. It does not mean that economic catastrophe has occurred because you've sinned. But it is an opportunity to go to God and say, God, this thing has happened. One of the things I would like to know is, is there something you're trying to say to me? It's a a perfectly appropriate question. And then as you do so and explore your relationship with God, it's an opportunity to pray because God is sovereign. And one of the things that comes out in the book of Joel is God is on his throne and he can intervene and he can bring relief. And even if your sin or his judgment were not the direct cause and effect of the present circumstances, God is willing to hear our prayer and to come to our rescue. As we look at the book of Job, it's actually fairly even divided. It's mostly poetry. It's divided into uh, two groups of, of nearly half. The first 37 verses deal with prophecies concerning judgment. And the last 36 verses deal with promises concerning the restoration. The locust plague occupies most of the first chapter and the drought that followed it. And then in chapter 2, and and by the way, I want to give you a little disclaimer here. Um, I told you I was going to do one sermon per book. Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to do one sermon per book, but I'm going to come back at the end of the Minor Prophets and do a series on prophecy. Because there's so much prophecy in these books about the second coming of Christ and even the first coming of Christ, I thought it would be appropriate to kind of save all the prophetic passages and come back and look at them globally. What, what are the prophecies of these prophets about the future day of the Lord? And so I'm going to come back and deal with those uh, in, a, in a sequel to the 12, the message of the 12 prophets. But anyway, we get into chapter 2. And we find that that Joel is actually telling us that if you have seen the devastation of the locust plague and the drought, you ain't seen nothing yet compared to what God will do on the day of the Lord. And that, in chapter 2, he begins to project forward to a time when Jesus is going to come back. Now, Joel doesn't say it's the time when Jesus is going to come back. He calls it the day of the Lord. But it's that future day when God brings all the enemies of Israel and all the enemies of God together in what Joel calls the valley of decision. And (coughs) there will be a day when all the nations of the world are gathered against Israel and God brings judgment and deals with them. And and Joel calls that the day of the Lord, and he says that judgment is going to be worse than anything you've ever seen with this locust plague. That is going to be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, 
And it's going to be a day when God shows himself mighty on behalf of his people. And then in the midst of that, he promises that there is hope for the people of God in genuine repentance. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. And who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Those of you who are theologians, that should be all of you, by the way, A.W. Tozer said, theology is the study of God, and every child of God should be a student of God. So you're all theologians here this morning, and I want to point out to you the, the powerful statement about the character of God in verse 13. As Joel encourages them to rend their hearts and not their garments. And by the way, as Joel comes on the scene, he does explain to them, that this locust plague and this drought is a part of the judgment of God to get their attention. He wants them to wake up. He wants them to turn back to him. Jehoiada has been counseling this, and now Joel is reinforcing it. This calamity that has come upon our land, as you seek God, he will respond to you. And this is what he says, For God is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Joel is telling us about the character of God. It is God's nature to want to bless and not to punish. In fact, he says, I take no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. I do not delight in that. It is God's nature to be compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Mark that down as the character of God. People that are experiencing the wrath of God may not believe that he is slow to anger, but what they don't realize is how long he waited before he visited them in his wrath. God waits a very long time. We see people, in fact, I'm, I'm sometimes amazed. Uh, I hear people that are ungodly um, people and blasphemous and atheists, and they say all kinds of things, and you kind of just almost hold your head and say, how in the world can God tolerate this? We fail to recognize that it doesn't affect God one whit. The fact that someone shakes their fist in his face and denies his very existence, that doesn't bother God. That doesn't affect his character or in any way diminish who he actually is. And it's amazing that he continues to give them breath that he actually supplies their life, that he continues to wait if perhaps they will turn. God's nature is slow to anger, and he is full of compassion. 
and he is filled with loving kindness. I think that's one of my favorite words in all the Bible, is loving kindness. Because it expresses two of the most precious attributes, the love of God and his kindness. His love that is infinite and unending and always uh, toward me on my behalf, and his kindness, which kind of tempers some of the other attributes that are very much a part of his character, but says that he is open to me, compassionate toward me, gentle toward me. I love the word loving kindness. And Joel says this is what he's like, and even though this terrible judgment has come, if you will turn to God, you will experience the loving kindness of the Lord and the relenting of the evil or the judgment. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that if you look at what, is, what has happened in the drought and in the locust, one of the things is that the people have stopped giving the offerings to the temple. They have stopped bringing the offerings. And many times that happens. And in times of economic crisis or strain, people stop uh, supplying or, or coming and giving their offering to the Lord. And yet, he says in verse 14, when God blesses, and relents of the evil and begins to restore the blessing, it says he will leave behind him a blessing, even a grain offering and a libation for the Lord your God. In other words, the people's hearts are going to be turned back to the Lord, and they're going to have an abundance, and the first thing they're going to want to do is, is give back to him and back to, to the temple offering how they've been blessed. Friends, when we're right with God, he is number one. This is not about money. Money is merely, or material things are merely the expression of a heart that has God on the throne. And as he blesses them in their repentance, they will restore the offering to the temple of the Lord. Well, as you go on in that chapter a little further, uh, you find that eventually... Joel gives that great prophecy that we're all familiar with when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he preached that powerful sermon and 3,000 were converted on that day. <clears throat> and he said, by way of explanation, these men are not drunk with wine as you suppose. But this is that which was prophesied by Joel. The day that the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh. And Joel, 820 years, 850 years before the day of Pentecost, Joel prophesied by the Spirit that there would come a day when God would pour His Spirit out upon the church and upon the age of the church and that that outpouring of His Spirit would, would last until the return of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at that in a little more detail at the end of the series, but he encapsulates the whole church age in his prophecy moving into chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he brings us to the end where he has all the nations gathered in the valley of decision. And he is going to 
God is going to show up on behalf of his people and in judgment of the ungodly nations of the Lord. The message of Joel in his time and in his day was this horrible thing that has happened to our economy, this thing that has destroyed our crops, dried up our fields, brought us to the point of starvation, that has done away with our jobs and left us economically depressed. If we turn to the Lord, God will restore to us and and He will come back to us and He will bless us and He will meet us. And friends, I think as a nation, you and I need to take that to heart. We, We can't do much in terms of calling for a national day of fasting and repentance. That's up to our national leaders. Who knows if they'll ever figure it out. But what we can do is pray for them and we can pray for our nation, we can pray for our country because perhaps God will grant us grace that leads to repentance if his people, which are called by his name, will pray and humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and seek God with all their heart. Who knows? But what he will give us a blessing. But I want to go back to chapter 2 for a moment as we move toward the end of the message. I want to go back to chapter 2, and I want to talk about the application of Job to your life and to mine. You know, one of the greatest encouragements to me out of this book is that God is a God of second chances. He is a God who loves to bless. And it's never too late to turn back to the Lord. No matter where you are, no matter where your life is headed, it's never too late to turn back to the Lord if you're hearing the message and God is calling out to you, you have not gone too far. It's been interesting to me, uh, as I've shared with people, uh, this fellow, uh, 69 years of age, uh, in the last days of his life, calling and asking to talk with me. And I go back 10 years when I had the funeral for his brother. And the only reason that that happened was because uh, a nurse who knew and loved the Lord Jesus Christ led his brother to faith in Christ two days before he died. And Because of that connection, I was invited to minister to the family at that time and and have the funeral for this brother. And out of that came other salvations, and it was a glorious time. And then, other than the immediate ones that we have known in our church, there was an interval of a decade when I didn't hear a word out of the family. But then... I get a call, and this guy's remembering, and he says, I want you to to do my funeral service, and I also would like to talk to you. And so I went over to the hospital on Tuesday to have a conversation. I was granted some time alone with him in the room, and we talked about 
what he wanted in terms of a service, and then I said, what's on your mind? You wanted to talk to me. And he was remembering the decision that his brother made ten years before, two days before he died. And he said, I want to make that decision. And I was able to explain the gospel and share Christ with him and how he could have the assurance of eternal life. And there in his hospital room, he invited Jesus Christ to be his Lord and Savior and to forgive his sin and to give him assurance and confidence of life eternal. Some people have said, wow, that's, um, that's kind of waiting a little late, isn't it? And I remind you of the thief on the cross who in the last moments of his life, the last hours, turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. It also reminded me of the parable Jesus told of the workers in the in the town square. Do you remember that? There were workers that were gathered, and the master goes into town to find some day labor. And it's about 9 o'clock in the morning, and there's some guys there that want to work. And so he says, come with me, and I'll give you a day's work for a day's pay. And some of them go, and, and they start working, and the master goes back about noontime. And there's still some fellows sitting in the marketplace, and he says, come with me and I'll give you a day's work for a day's pay. And so they follow him. And, and he comes back about 3 o'clock and there's still some fellows waiting for a job. And he says, come with me, I'll give you a day's work for a day's pay. And then finally he comes back at 5 o'clock, about an hour before quitting time. There's still some fellows sitting there waiting for a job. And he says, have you been all day and you haven't found any work? And what are you doing here? And they said, no one's offered us a job. And he says, well, come with me, and I'll give you a day's work for a day's pay. And so they follow him, and it's, when they all come to the end of the day, about an hour later, he hands out the paychecks, and everybody gets the same check. And the people that started work at 9 o'clock say, wait a minute, wait, hold the phone. We've been working all day. We've been working through the heat of the day. We, we've been burning up out here in the fields, and... These guys have only been here an hour. And the master says, friend, what's the problem? I offered you a day's work and I promised you a day's pay. Is that what you got? Well, yeah. Well, these that came at 5 o'clock, I offered them the same thing and they took it. What's the problem? I gave you what I promised. And the point that Jesus is making in the parable is if you come to the Father for life eternal, He makes no discrimination. He offers life eternal to all who come, whether they come at the 9 o'clock hour or the 5 o'clock hour. He makes no difference in the payout. Jesus has paid the price. Salvation is offered to all who will receive him. Now, is it smart to wait till 5 o'clock? No, that's really stupid. It's very presumptuous. 
You might not have lingering days or weeks before you die. You may be cut off with a heart attack or a car accident with no time for reflection. The scripture says, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Trust Jesus Christ this moment to think that you can live your life and do as you please and right at the end uh, come to faith is, is a horribly presumptuous attitude. Over time, your heart may grow cold. You may drift away. Your, your sense of even God may become calloused and The scripture says it is possible if you stiffen your neck, having been often reproved, that one day you will be cut off without remedy because you, uh, as some of the great preachers of another era said, you have sinned away the day of grace. It is possible to go too long. And it is possible to become too cold. And it is possible to have no warning before the moment of judgment arrives, for it is appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. But the message of Joel is that if you hear the sound of the voice of God today saying, rend your heart and not your garments and come back to me, says the Lord, if you hear that voice today, God will respond to you. God will meet you. God will bless you. He will receive you because He is a gracious God and genuine repentance stirs His heart. I want you to look in chapter 2 at verses 19 and, and following. He says, And the Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. And I will remove the northern army from you and deal with your enemies. In verse uh, 23, I believe it is, Rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication and poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And verse 25 is so special. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, the gnawing locust, the great army which I sent among you. And you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you Then my people will never be put to shame, and you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. And after this I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Verse 25 is such a powerful verse. Because he says, I will make up to you the years that the locust has eaten. Friends, here's an amazing thing about God. He is not obligated to make up for lost time. But often in His grace and mercy, He does just that very thing. 
And in the midst of all of that, he promises his presence. You will know that I am the Lord your God in the midst of you. There is no greater blessing in your life that you can have than knowing the, the living presence of God, than experiencing him and walking with him and having his favor and knowing his blessing. And, and I want to tell you something very truly this morning. Five years lived in obedience and following Jesus Christ with all of your heart will be more productive for you, more valuable, more wonderful than 50 years on your own. You'll make wiser choices. You'll have better values. Your focus will be clear. Your life will have meaning and purpose because you're fulfilling God's plan for you. Your life will be blessed with the presence of God. God is a God who will make up for the years that the locust has eaten. He can do more with you right now today than you've done your whole life to this moment if you've been living it without him. It's an amazing truth about our God. The one thing that I take away from this, too, is that God is a God of second chances. Whether you have never turned to Jesus Christ in your life, and this morning he's speaking to your heart, this is your opportunity, it's your chance to, to move into the path of God and move in the right direction. But maybe you've been a follower of Christ. Maybe you have professed faith in him. Maybe years ago you declared yourself to follow Christ, but you've gotten off the path. Some of you may only have gotten off a little bit. You're close enough that you can kind of see it over there. And some of you may be so deep in the woods this morning you don't have any idea where the path lies. But God comes to us and says, if you will repent, if you will rend your heart, I don't need this outward showy stuff. I just need to know that from your heart, from the depths of your being, that you are turning to me with your whole heart, with all of your life, that you're turning back to me and putting me first and making me the God that I am as number one in your life. I'll put you back on the path. I'll bless your life. I'll give you the grain and the new wine. I'll fill your threshing floors. I'll give you my presence. I will make that difference. And your life will be blessed by my presence. And it will be different. Friends, we have a God who is loving, kind, who has loving kindness, compassion, and graciousness toward us. A God who wants to forgive. A God who wants to restore, who takes joy in it. That's the message of Joel. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn back to the Lord with all of your being. 
stop the games, get back in the path, and God will bless your life in ways that you could never imagine. I want to save the word redeemer, really, for when I get to Hosea, because Hosea is a great book about redemption. But I hope the word redemption and redeemer is a word that's very special in your vocabulary. It means to recover. It means to restore. It means to take back and put it in its rightful place. God is a great redeemer. He is the one who loves to take your life and restore and fill you up and put you where you were meant to be and give you blessing. That is his desire. He is the Redeemer. Will you, if you're off the path today, will you turn back to him with all of your heart? And he will make up in his way, but you'll know it, he will make up those years that have been lost. Father, I come to you this morning in Jesus' name. And I want to pray for everyone here today. We need to be reminded of this message. We need to be reminded that you are a great God in the heavens who loves to restore, who is quick to repent of judgment. Filled with loving kindness, you want to recover the lost years. And I pray this morning that if there's anyone here off the path, or perhaps someone here who's never even been on the path, that you would speak to their hearts right now. And in this quiet moment of inner reflection, give us grace that we might turn our hearts toward you. Jesus Christ.